welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Melissa Letourneau. Melissa is a research soil scientist with the USDA ARS Northwest Sustainable Agroecosystems Research Unit. She completed her PhD in soil science at Washington State University in 2017 and holds additional degrees in geology from Indiana University and computer science from Oregon State University. During her PhD, she studied bacterial biofilms, mineralogical transformations, and bioavailability of nutrients in the root zone of wheat. In her postdoctoral research, she linked microbial communities with the severity of soil-borne fungal disease. She started her current position in July 2021 and aims to integrate multi-scale biophysical, chemical, and ecological data to enhance nutrient and water use efficiencies, as well as crop yields throughout the Columbia Plateau. Hello, Melissa. Hey, Drew. So, could you describe for us a little bit your prior research and explain how it has set you the stage for your current work? Uh, sure thing. Um, so I started out studying geology at Indiana University, and while I was there, I worked on some research projects uh, looking at some field-scale geophysical and hydrological processes. Um, so after completing that degree, I took a little bit of time off, traveled around, but really missed working in the natural sciences. And so I went back to study um, biology and organic chemistry at North Seattle Community College. And from there, I developed a really strong interest in plant physiology. And so I decided to pursue a PhD in botany at Washington State University. And I started out there in uh, Mechtild Tegeter's lab, working on nitrogen uptake and transport in Arabidopsis and a variety of other crop plants. But I really became more interested in those below ground processes. I felt that they were difficult to study and maybe for that reason, not quite as well studied as a lot of above ground processes. And so I ended up switching over to the soil science department at WSU where I worked with Jim Harsh and Linda Tomashow. And we also collaborated with some folks at Pacific Northwest National Lab and Argonne National Lab to study root associated biofilms. And so if you're unfamiliar with the term biofilm, it's a very dense bacterial colony. And often these colonies produce a kind of slime um, made up of biopolymers like carbohydrates and proteins. And uh, these things are very pervasive in the environment, especially in, associated, in association with plant roots. Um, every blade of grass, every tree, every shrub, um, and, and yet this way of life is is kind of incomprehensible to us. It's not the sort of thing that we would encounter in our day-to-day -day experience. And so studying these things was really very interesting. And I, I spent a lot of time actually looking up at them under some powerful microscopes. And it gives you kind of very intimate feeling, you know, looking at this beautiful association between microbes and plant roots. Um, but aside from just making some pretty pictures, we also studied the impacts of these biofilms on soil mineralogy and nutrient bioavailability. And we've, we had this particularly interesting finding where one particular type of bacteria in 
producing biofilms in the in the root zone of wheat could weather enough iron to account for all of the iron that was taken up by the by say a four week old wheat seedling, which doesn't sound like a lot. But actually, that's several orders of magnitude more than what the bacteria need themselves. So as, as far as environmental engineering feats go, this is at least equivalent to humans building skyscrapers. You know? And this is taking place in the root zone of wheat. Um, so that was very interesting work, but we were only looking at one type of bacteria. And there are tens to hundreds of thousands of types of bacteria and also fungi associated with plant roots. And so for my postdoctoral research, I went on to study um, microbial communities overall and how they can impact uh, take-all disease severity. And we, in that work, we found some very interesting patterns related to soil type and to wheat cultivar selection, uh, selection by specific cultivars. And so we're still probing those data. Um, and, and there are a few different groups of bacteria that might be good biocontrol candidates for future studies. Uh, bacteria that might be able to suppress disease severity a little bit. Um, so that's my prior research. Um, so given this broad background, uh, geology, plant physiology, soil microbiology, and mineralogy, and also a little bit of computer science that I studied during my postdoc, um, I decided to pursue this new position um, with the Northwest Sustainable Agroecosystems Research Unit. That's a USDA ARS research unit led by Dave Huggins. And my role in this unit will be cropping system modeling. Um, but really, I, f I think my role in this unit is going to be collaboration <laughs> more than anything. Because cropping systems, um, if I've learned anything, uh, and I think most of us know this, they're, they're exceedingly complex. The, there's probably not a single discipline that doesn't doesn't have some bearing on outcomes in in cropping systems. And so, and even in the fields that I've studied, you know, you study a lot of things, you learn a little about them all. So there are plenty of people with much greater depth of knowledge than I have in some of these things. And so I'm really looking forward to that aspect of this work, uh, just bringing in a lot of ideas and expertise and practical knowledge as well to understand our cropping systems better here in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. When you say you're going to do cropping systems modeling, what, what, what is a cropping system model? Cropping systems models. These are basically a synthesis of data that's been collected over time and space. And, and I mean, usually you want quite a bit of data, lots of different types of measurements. Um, and the utility of these things is that you can make predictions, maybe about, about a particular outcome in the future, such as yield. Um, what's the yield look like, going to look like if we have this amount of rainfall by this date? Uh, you know, things along those lines. Um, but but it doesn't stop there. Uh, it's very important to compare the predictions that you've made with with actual observations to see you know how accurate how accurate your predictions are. And it's okay if they're not very accurate because you can use that information to identify sources of error that represent knowledge gaps, uh, and that can lead to future research. Right? You can you can develop hypotheses based on some of those sources of error do more detailed research. Um, and on the other hand, if you have highly accurate predictions, that's really great because then you can anticipate and adapt to change. You can select in advance, maybe at least a little bit in advance, you know, what management practice or rotational crop is going to be good for this for this particular soil type under under this set of climatic conditions. So that that's the real utility of these things and I just want to uh, give briefly a few examples. I'm not going to go into much detail because I didn't develop them and I actually haven't worked with them much yet, but but there's one um developed by 
There, there's one widely popular model called CropSyst, and this was developed by Claudio Stockel, Roger Nelson, and Armin Kamanian. And the core of this model has been widely used. There are a lot of different submodels and modules that have been built to interface with this thing. But the core of the model is really a series of crop physiological elements that are impacted by nitrogen supply and water status and temperature. Uh, so, you know, fairly basic set of parameters at the end of the day, but of course the the way that these are developed and understood is much more complex than that. And then, as I mentioned, there, there are other factors that can be interfaced with this, uh, like climate. Um, so based on there a former PhD student of David Huggins and John Reganold Harsimran Carr came in and developed a flex cropping model that is uh, sort of able to do some yield predictions for rotational crops based on locations within the agroecological classes that we see in Washington state. And those agroecological classes, she actually delimited based on land use um, using actual cropland data, um, but also based on potential evapotranspiration, pot um, potential evapotranspiration. And so these, this is something that drives a lot of the variability in the Columbia Plateau. And then the, the last example I wanted to give is another uh, model-based, it's an extension again of CropSyst, and this was developed by Brian Carlson and Lynn Carpenter-Boggs uh, to look at the carbon footprint of organic farming systems. So these are just a handful of examples to give you an idea of, of what cropping system models are for and what the point is. Okay. In, in a former life, I was a dry land cropping system specialist in Western Nebraska. And what I, what I found is I do, I could only afford to do an experiment for two or three years. And that was such a small sample size of all the possible years I could have. And, and I turned to crop models to try to help me figure out, did I just pick the two years that this was going to work well, or is this something that will work over a period of time? I, I never got very good at really understanding the model without a modeler helping me, but it was a it was a very useful tool to try and get that. We have lots of different, like 2020 was an extremely high yielding wet year. 2021 was one of the worst droughts in history. And if you happen to run your two experiments in those two years, uh, you'd have totally different answers, but you might have good data for a model to predict how it would do in between those two extremes. So uh, it can be a useful tool, but it's it's uh, they can get rather complex because especially if they're process models, Right, trying to figure it out. So um, what are some of the problems you hope to solve with models or what are the first things you're going to try to um, model in your, in your program? Uh, definitely soil acidification. Um, that's a growing problem in this region. Um, a lot of producers are starting to see issues with aluminum toxicity, especially with the pulse crop rotations. Uh, they, they tend to be particularly susceptible to acidification. And the other issue is that lime isn't, you know, affordable liming options aren't readily available in this region. So if this is going to be a problem going forward, we want to maybe develop some tools that could be used for precision liming, for instance, in, ca in case that does become necessary. But we also want to see if there are different management practices or cropping systems that can help to mitigate acidification without having to resort to to liming. Uh, and I don't know how practical that's actually going to be, but but it's certainly worth looking into. Um, and also just being able to 
measure, understand, and predict the extent of the acidification in our region is important. So linked to soil acidification and also of interest is carbon and nitrogen cycling. Um, so we're not going to be able to look at one without the other, actually. Um, and I'm fortunate because we've also brought on a scientist in our unit, Claire Phillips, who is a specialist in this area, soil carbon and nitrogen cycling and greenhouse gas emissions. So I'll be working very closely with her, I think, on this on this problem. Um, the other thing um, I'm interested in continuing to work on is crop disease. And so I'll probably, I'd like to continue my collaborations with um, Tim Pollitz and others in the USDA ARS Wheat Health Genetics and Quality Research Unit. So I, I worked with David Weller in this unit on my postdoctoral research, and I'd like to continue those collaborations. Um, and Tim, in particular, has some ideas about looking at distribution of disease inoculum, um, the environmental conditions that are amenable uh, to to seeing severe disease outcomes, and also uh, looking for more biocontrol kinds of organisms that we might be able to use in lieu of fungicides, um, you know, because we still can't use methyl bromide anymore. <laughs> so and that, I don't know that anyone's come up with anything quite as effective as that. But but that's also you know absolutely terrible for the soil biology. So if we can if we can find alternatives, uh, that would be nice. And then. Um, we also have a new remote sensing scientist in our unit, so I'm hoping to work with, uh, that's Joaquin Casanova, and uh, I'm hoping to work with him on uh, remote sensing methods to detect crop nutrient status, so maybe aluminum toxicity and maybe disease symptoms. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what it takes to tease all of these different stressors apart, you know, to identify just on, based on spectral data, what is the stressor? I think that's an interesting problem. Um, and then the other, the other thing we want to look at, new cropping systems. So we have an, an excellent cropping systems agronomist in our unit, Garrett Heineck, um, who's interested in doing some intercropping, in, in particular Piola, and maybe also looking at some perennial systems like Kernza. And so he's been talking with a lot of folks about this, but there aren't any, I don't think there are any cropping systems models that are covering these kind of new systems. So, so we're going to have to develop those um, to inform management decisions. And finally, I, re I really want to work on these um, pre-existing flex cropping model in particular, see if we can improve the yield predictions. Maybe we can add some more rotational crops as time goes on. Um, but working with some of these pre-existing tools and, and just refining them as much as we can. So it's kind of a long list, I guess. But You're not going to be short of things to work on, are you? No. <laughs> what, what kind of improvements are you going to need to make to these models to uh, do some of these things you're talking about, like like the soil acidification and the and the flex cropping type models? Uh, so there, there are definitely a number of these. Number one on my list is actually site specificity, and I feel that this has sort of broad implications for modeling. Um, yeah, so we, we need to look at in at specific sites in great detail, but we also need to look at sites with a real variety of growing conditions, and that's really important. So luckily for me, our unit is part of the USDA ARS Long-Term Agroecosystem Research Network, which is a a network of 18 sites that are, are set up for, you know, just collecting all kinds of measurements Um you know, yield parameters, but also soil data, crop physiology data, remote sensing data, uh, all kinds of different data uh, at these sites. And, and they've been doing it for quite some time. And so our, our site here is the Cook Agronomy Farm. But 
actually, we're hoping to extend the reach of our LTAR site uh, to include the whole Columbia Plateau. And so we're really hoping to collaborate with WSU Extension and look at data from their sites. We're really excited that the WSU Soil Health Initiative is setting up their network of long-term research sites, and we're hoping to tap into that. And then Garrett Heineck, again, is has been going around and cultivating some relationships so that we can do on-farm research as well. Um, but the main thing is we're hoping to have some long-term research sites um, representing each of the agroecological classes in Washington so that we can do both some, some very detailed modeling work but also capture a wide range of conditions. Um, and then the, the last piece on this, um, near and dear to my heart, based on my past work, is, is really incorporating more root zone microbiology and chemistry. Um, I feel that this tends to be overlooked a lot in favor of, uh, you know, crop above ground traits and also uh, field scale processes, but the root zone is where all of the nutrient uptake happens. And so I, I suspect that these processes play a major role in nutrient use efficiencies and also acidification, actually, because the other thing to keep in mind is the root zone has a lot of carbon, a lot of energy going in that the bulk soil just doesn't have. And so so there's a lot of options for uh, chemical catalysis there by, by all these microorganisms. Okay. So... Um I think you hit on it earlier, working under the soil is a lot more work, <laughs> maybe sometimes why it isn't studies as much. So it's a, a primary to, to continue your work in, I believe. What what approaches are used to develop models from, so you collect all this data, how do you use it to, to develop new models or to improve models you already have? Yeah, so there are, there are two kind of families of approaches that are in use these days. Um, one is sort of in the statistics camp. And so in these cases, you have some hypothesis about how different factors or variables in the system are related to one another. And so you do what you can to take the data that you have to fit and try to fit that data to a function that you think expresses that hypothesized relationship. And that, I know examples might be, say, a probability distribution um, or maybe some kind of linear relationship. And you can use these kind of analyses to identify actual cause and effect relationships, um, which is handy. Um, and the other, the other nice thing about statistics is that you can differentiate between your actual factor effects and so-called random effects. And actually, random isn't a real thing. What, what random really means is these are a bunch of effects that we haven't accounted for. Maybe it's something to do with the way that the data was collected, or maybe it's some variable that we just hadn't thought about. You know, maybe... We collected data on potassium, but we don't have any data on magnesium. So that can be really important um, for making predictions because if you don't know what the sources of error are, then then those predictions might not work under under a different scenario. Uh, so that's important uh, in terms of statistics. So the the other group of approaches that are used are these machine learning approaches. Um, so these are best for situations where you have a lot of different factors. Maybe there are a lot of complex relationships among these factors, and maybe we have kind of limited understanding at this stage. And, I, you know, perfect case in point are microbial communities. They have this incredible diversity. We haven't been able to study every single microorganism out there, so so we don't necessarily know what they do. So this is these kind of data are a great candidate, I think, for applying machine learning. Um, so you can't develop a clear hypothesis if you, you know, if you if you don't have a good understanding and if there's too much complexity. 
Well, so what we do is we throw a massive data set at a supercomputer, you know, high performance computing clusters, and we have them execute these trial and error processes to try to identify patterns that are linked to a specific outcome. You know, maybe that's a certain yield target, or maybe that's a certain precipitation pattern or maximum temperature. There could, you know, the the target could be any number of things. Um, and what this allows us to do is oftentimes to make some very highly accurate predictions. Um, but the drawbacks of these, and you know, because you're including a lot of factors and a lot of complex relationships, you're not just fitting one simple model. Um, but the, the drawback of these kind of techniques is, for one thing, you, it can be very difficult to identify a cause and effect relationships because these models are so complex. So you can't necessarily go back in and actually understand what happened. You, you can still make your predictions and work with those, but but that doesn't mean it's going to necessarily give you a better overall understanding of the system. You know, you might be able to dig a few hypotheses out of there. It's a, it's a tricky business, though, and a, and a, actually a pretty hot topic in the research in the machine learning research world. Uh, and the other side is um, your predictions might reflect some random effects because you haven't been able to test the impact of your factors versus random effects like you have in a statistical model. Um, so, and that, that's often referred to as overfitting. And so the problem with that is, again, if you take the, the predictions that you've made based on one data set and you try to take that to a new system, it may not perform quite as well if there's a lot of random, if there are a lot of random effects captured in those predictions. And so in both cases, um, the important thing to keep in mind is you're using an abstraction of your input data. And so the scope of your predictions, the accuracy of those predictions is going to be limited by the scope of that input data. So for example, you can collect a broad range of input conditions with fairly low resolution, and maybe you can get reasonable accuracy over a large area. You know, maybe you can even get it so that you can address both the Corn Belt and the Columbia Plateau. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know that anyone's actually accomplished that. Um, but you're not going to get very good precision at a single site. You know, the, you know, for instance, if you wanted to capture the topographic variations at the Cook Agronomy Farm, you're not going to be able to do that with a regional scale data set. You're going to have to go into finer resolution. And then on the flip side, um, maybe you have some very detailed site-specific conditions like all of the linkages to topography at Cook Agronomy Farm. So you can maybe make very precise predictions for that one site, but you're not necessarily going to take that model and, and try to apply it to, say, the dryland research station at Lind. You know, right. <laughs> so so that's the trade-off, and and that's why it's so important to collect both um, regional and site-specific data, and, and that's why I'm so excited about these long-term research networks and the on-farm the producer collaborations that we have to do on-farm research. I think there's a lot of potential in, the, in that network to, to work in kind of both directions. I don't think there's going to be any shortage of things for you to work on <laughs> in, in your new position here. There are lots of interesting things. And, and um, yeah, you, you have both fundamental basic things you need to learn, but also these models should help make applied decisions for people, I would think. So very interesting. Thank you for taking some time to, to visit with us about your uh, past and what your future may look like. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Melissa. <laughs> thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. 
If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear in future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.